0: If I were to ask you in here, how many of you believe that we are to be growing in our faith? Growing up in Christ. My guess is that most of you in here would agree with that. Am I right? Yeah. most of you agree that we as believers are to be growing in godliness. But if I were to also ask you how that happens... If I were to ask you to explain to me how you as a follower of Christ move from where you are forward in your faith, my guess is that far fewer of you would be able to give me as confident an answer. Now you may give me an answer, but it wouldn't be as confident. Many of you will boldly raise your hand to the first question. You know beyond a a shadow of a doubt that you're to be growing up in Christ, but many of you are not as confident in answering how that happens. Now again, you may give me some answers like be involved in church, pray, read my Bible, but if I were to come up to you individually and ask you, what is your personal plan for growth this year How are you going to move forward in your faith in 2014? How would you respond? Truth is, when it comes to that question, when it comes to the question of spiritual growth, the what is much more easy to answer than the how. Most of us know we're to be growing in godliness, but far fewer of us know how to get there. And if this is you, I have good news for you in here this morning. God does not leave us in the dark on this. He clearly shows us in His Word how we move forward in our faith. And so for the next several months in here, we're going to be studying a book almost solely devoted to this. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians This morning we are starting a new sermon series through the book of Ephesians entitled Walking Worthy. And in this book, God, through His Apostle Paul, clearly shows us how to do just that. How to walk worthy. How to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. He clearly shows us in this book how we are to think As God's people and how we are to live as followers of Christ but before we we dig our heels in and begin to plow through this great book I want to just take some time this morning to introduce the book to you this morning I want to just spend some time discussing the background on this book and how this book is written because I believe this will really help you when we're going forward through this book first let's talk about the author The author of the book Paul wrote Ephesians there is very little debate on this we have both internal and external evidence to support this most of the early church fathers in Christian history they tell us that that Paul was was the author he he wrote Ephesians so there's there's external evidence there but there's also internal evidence within the book That indicates to us that Paul wrote it for example the book of Ephesians begins with his name the very first word in this book is Paul now who is Paul well he tells us in verse 1 an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God now don't just pass over that lightly this is a very important title that Paul attaches to his name here by making mention of this here Paul is is making the point here that he is writing with great authority much greater authority than himself in fact he claims here to have a double source of authority now that's authority isn't it Paul says Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God first notice he's an apostle Paul wasn't just another guy with an opinion, was he? He was an apostle. An apostle is is someone who had been chosen and commissioned directly by the risen Lord, Jesus. Apostles were chosen by Christ to be his mouthpiece, to be his representatives. And do you know that there are only 14 men in all of history who can say that they had this special calling on their life? Yeah, the original 12, of course, Judas dropped out. That's putting it nicely, isn't it? Jesus later added Matthias. And then later after his ascension, after after his post-resurrection ministry, after leaving earth and returning to be with the Father, Jesus also appeared to and commissioned Paul. And you remember Paul's story, right? Paul was sort of the black sheep of the group, wasn't he? And he realized this about himself. His name was not always Paul. Before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a very well-known rabbi and leader and teacher. And at one time, Saul of Tarsus was one of the most devout anti-Christian leaders in the Jewish community. He hated Christians and he went after them with a reckless passion. But one day, while on the road to Damascus to go and snatch up more believers to put into prison, Jesus appears to Saul on the road, opens his eyes to the truth about who he is, and he calls Paul out. He commissions Paul to be his apostle, and shortly after, Saul's name is changed to Paul. And Paul goes from there and goes to spend some time in the Arabian desert to prepare for the work Christ had called him to do. And then he goes from there to a church in Antioch till the Spirit of God calls both he and Barnabas out from Antioch to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world. And as they say, the rest is history, right? From Antioch, Paul goes out and starts what has to be considered one of the greatest mission ministries in the history of the church. Paul went from city to city planning churches everywhere all across the known world. This work Paul did These churches that that Paul started, they laid the foundation for Christianity. I mean, our existence here today, church, at Fellowship Bible Church, our existence as a body of believers comes as a direct result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And of course, Paul's not to be praised for that, is he? God is. God is the one who did this great work in and through him. But, But Paul was the guy. He was the guy that, that God had chosen to use for his purposes. So Paul's name and his title here, it tells us a lot, doesn't it? Paul was a champion for Christ. He was his spokesperson. He had been commissioned by him to be his missionary. Those are all the credentials Paul needed. He didn't need to say, Paul, B-A, M-A, T-H-D, P-H-D. All that was needed was Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And notice he also says, by the will of God. He gives us a double source of authority here. He is, he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to God's will. He tells us here, I'm the one who has seen and has been commissioned by Christ and all of this has taken place in, in accordance with God's will, according to his plan. Once again, Paul's just making the point here. He's not just a, another person with an opinion. He's not a self-declared apostle. We have a bunch of those running around today, don't we? Not Paul. Paul. Paul was not an apostle by his own doing, nor by the will of men. He was chosen and commissioned by Christ in accordance with God's will. That's authority, isn't it? And there is is clear and simple application to be made by us here right off the bat at the start of this book because that's the case. Because Paul has been commissioned by Christ to be his spokesperson in accordance with God's will. And because Paul had appointed, because God had appointed Paul to write this letter and others, because that's the case here, his words, Paul's words, get this, they're God's words. Same as if God spoke them to us directly and audibly. Therefore, they're to be looked to and trusted and followed. They are. Over the next few months... As we go through this book, keep that truth in mind. That these words that we're reading through, that we're studying through here, they are God's words. Therefore, they are to be looked to and trusted and followed as such. So that's the author. Let's talk about the date of the book. After Paul becomes a Christian, the crowd he once ran with didn't take too kindly to him going around spreading this Christian message and it landed him in jail many times and this message eventually cost him his life. And this book was actually written during one of Paul's imprisonments, one of his prison epistles. It's thought to be written around 60 to 61 AD during Paul's first stint in Rome, in prison. And we'll talk about later how he was originally in Jewish custody, and then he ends up in Rome. And this is during his first Roman imprisonment. So Paul is writing from prison, and who is he writing to? Who's the audience of the book? Well, something you may not know about this book here is, though this book is, is called Ephesians, and though in our translations in Ephesians 1.1 it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus in some of the earliest manuscripts, did you know that was left blank? was. Some of the earliest manuscripts that we have, it reads in this way, to the saints who are in blank. It's left blank. And for that reason, many believe this letter was was what was meant to be a circular letter. In that it was written to to circulate it was written to be passed along to all churches everywhere now the reason Ephesians appears in in the later manuscripts and the reason why it's addressed to the saints in Ephesus may be because it went there first but Paul has a greater audience in mind this letter is much different than his other letters You'll notice as you read through it that Paul wrote it in a very impersonal way. I mean, in this book, he doesn't mention one person or one issue in particular. It's much more general, as if he's, he's writing to a larger Christian audience, some of whom he had never met. Therefore, I believe this is the way it's meant to be read and studied by us. I believe we can put our church's name in the blank. To the saints who are in Jacksonville, Texas. To the saints at Fellowship Bible Church. I believe that's the way Paul intended it to be read. Notice also here that Paul doesn't say to everyone who darkens the doorstep of a church building. To everyone who attends church week in and week out. He says this book is written to who? The saints. To all those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now let's first focus on that word saint. Who is Paul talking about when he talks about the saints here? When you hear that word saints, what comes to mind? A bunch of dead old guys? That's what I think of. But the Greek word translated saints here is the Greek word hagios, which means holy or dedicated. Paul is addressing all of those who have been redeemed. He's writing to the Christians of his day. All those who have been set apart by God for his purposes. So, So saints here refers to all believers. All those who have turned from their sin. All those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And notice he also says to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now let me say something here. This phrase here is to in no way be separated from the word saints, but rather it's a a definition of the word. Paul is explaining here what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a saint. Paul's not saying here, I'm writing to all those who have been saved by God, oh yeah, and I'm writing to the faithful as well. We have a tendency to separate those two, don't we? We say they're two types of christian there are the carnal christians and then there are the faithful christians scripture does not teach this folks though we all mess up at times the bible's clear on that we're not perfect we struggle god's people are those types of people who follow him god's people are those types of people who trust in him and who are faithful they're not saved by their works but their good works do prove them to be saved told in scripture, they'll know you by your fruits. It's there. Scripture clearly teaches this. So Paul's saying here, I'm writing this letter to the saints, to all Christians everywhere, all people who have been set apart by God through Christ, all people who have turned from their sins and are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. I'm writing to all of those who are faithfully following him. So if you're here this morning and you've been saved by God, if you're here this morning and you are a faithful follower of Christ, if you have given your life to the Lord and have this deep-seated desire to grow up in Christ, to grow in godliness, this book is for you. And if you're not there yet, I pray you get there. I pray you come through this study this very day to understand your sinfulness and your need of a savior and you give your life over to him so that this book can be for you as well now let's talk about the message of the book look at verse two paul says grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ now this here is a standard greeting that paul uses in his writings but it was very unique for his time period we, we have standard greetings we use all the time right we say hello how are you In Spanish, hola, como estas? When Leslie and I were in Brazil, Portuguese, they say bom dia, which means good morning in Portuguese. Tudo bem, which means how are you doing? We have these standard greetings that we use. And, And this was the case in Paul's day as well. But Paul's greeting here, though standard for his epistles was unique for his time. This was a greeting that Paul used when he was writing to Christians. And and though it does mean what our, our greetings mean today, how are you, I hope all things are well with you, it means more than that. What Paul means when he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying God's blessings be upon you. I hope all things are well with you. But you know what else he's doing here? He is reminding his his readers right off the bat. He's reminding the Christians of his day of the great grace and peace of God. And the words grace and peace, they're used over and over again all throughout this book. The word grace is used 12 times in this letter alone. Six chapters, 12 times. And the word peace is used eight times. This book begins and ends with the words grace and peace. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 6 quickly. Ephesians 6 and look at verses 23 and 24. Listen to what Paul says here. Paul says this, Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So this book begins and ends with those two words. And of course we see these words used throughout this book. First let's talk about grace. Now, if you've been in Christian circles long enough, you've heard grace defined, right? You've heard it probably defined in this way, that that God's grace refers to his unmerited, undeserved favor that he freely gives to us. It's unmerited. It's unearned. It's undeserved. It's freely given. Yet, get this, it was costly. It was costly. It was not cheap. Though God's grace was free, folks, it was not cheap. It cost him greatly. It cost him his son. It cost Christ his life. It was made possible through his blood. And so Paul is, is reminding his readers here at the very beginning of this book of God's amazing grace. And, of course, he reminds them of God's grace throughout this letter, one of the key verses One of the key passages in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Many of you know it by heart, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Paul explains here, we are saved by God's grace alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. He says, this is not your own doing. You know how you translate that in the Greek? this is not your own doing. Grace alone. Not a result of works. God did this. God saved you. And in most of the the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul explains how God did this. So Paul reminds his readers at the very beginning of this book of God's amazing grace. Now, Now, let me ask you this for a minute. I thought we said earlier, the book of ephesians is all about how we grow in godliness how we move forward in our faith if that's true then why talk about salvation that's kind of going backwards isn't it i mean he's talking to believers here why spend all this time if he wants them to move forward in their faith why spending all spend all this time talking about what's happened in the past shouldn't we move on from that i mean how does knowing about god's grace help us spiritually How does it mature us in our faith? Why does Paul include this? Here's why. Paul understood something. And it's something we've talked about time and time again in here. Get this. He knew that before we as believers could live rightly, we must first think rightly. That's what Paul knew. Paul knew that before we could live the way God has called us to live, as believers, we must first think the way he's called us to think. He knew that before we could walk in good works, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we must first understand the, the early part of that verse where we're told we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul knew that knowing precedes doing. You need to understand this right off the bat to understand this book. Knowing precedes doing. Paul knew before we could demonstrate great grace to others as he calls for us to do in the latter half of this book, we must first understand the great grace God has shown us. That's essential. That's why Paul goes to great lengths in the first part of this book To explain to us the amazing grace of our God Paul knew that understanding grace was a key element to our spiritual development which is why he makes mention of it 12 times in this book alone Paul also talks about peace again peace is another word used over and over again in this book it's used eight times found throughout the letter and in the first half of this letter Paul, when Paul makes mention of of peace here, he talks mainly about the peace that God has brought to us and established for us through Christ. Look at Ephesians 2.13. Turn over to Ephesians 2.13 quickly. Listen to what Paul says here in Ephesians 2.13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Then look at what he says here. For he himself is our what? Peace. Folks, God has made peace for us. He has made peace between us and himself through his son. There was a time when we were not at peace with God. We were his enemies, as scripture clearly states. We were far off. We were estranged from him, but we learn from Paul here that God has done something about it. He has made a way for us when there seemed to be no way. He made peace for us when there seemed to be no chance at peace. And he has done it through the blood of his son Jesus. Paul reminds us at the very beginning of this book, in the first half of this letter, that God has brought about peace for us through Christ. And again, why take time to focus on this? This has already happened. How does focusing on the past move us forward in our faith? Why does Paul mention this? Again, Paul knows we cannot show grace to others and live faithfully. Peaceably with other believers as he clearly calls for us to do in the latter half of this book unless we understand the great grace that God has shown us unless we have a good grasp on the peace he has made with us through his son that's key like I said a moment ago folks living rightly has everything to do with thinking rightly it does right thinking leads to right living If we don't think rightly about God we don't think rightly about him we are not going to live rightly for him that's why studying theology is so very vital there are some in the church today say ah let's not get bogged down in that let's not study theology let's not get caught up in that let's just keep it real simple and basic and love on people and and tell them Jesus loves them and that's it listen What we're going to learn in this book here is that theology is necessary. Get this. If we're not sound in doctrine, we will not be faithful in practice. Did you get that? If we are not sound in doctrine, we will not be faithful in practice. That's why Paul structures this book, the book of Ephesians, the way that he does. Notice up on the screen I have an outline for you here of the book. And notice It's very simple, very orderly. This is one of the easiest books in all the Bible to outline. In the first half of the book, Paul's focus is upon doctrine, chapters 1 through 3. And in the second half of the book, his focus is upon practice, chapters 4 through 6. Doctrine and practice, what we know and what we do. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 3, are all about what God has done for us through the person and work of His Son and about our identity in Christ. And then in the latter half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, they're all about how we live in light of that reality. How we live in light of the truths found in Ephesians 1 through 3. So the book breaks up very nicely here. And the key verse, the pivotal verse, the swing verse that takes us from the first half of the book to the second half of the book is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This verse really ties the entire book together. Look at it. Remember chapters 1 through 3, the focus is upon doctrine, upon doctrine what God has done for us through Christ, who we are in him. Chapters 4 through 6 are all about how we live in light of those truths. And then notice Ephesians 4 verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, you got to ask what's the therefore therefore, right? What's it there for? He's referring to all that he said in chapters 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, in light of all these things God has done for you in Christ, and in light of who you are in him, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is the key verse in the book. This is a pivotal verse, which is why I've entitled this series, Walking Worthy. Paul's making the point here the way we walk worthy before our God is by knowing what God has done for us, knowing who we are in Christ, and living in that reality. That's the way you walk worthy. Walking worthy has to do with being sound in doctrine and faithful in practice. Folks, both are necessary. Our Christian life doesn't stop with knowing and it doesn't start with doing. Many people think, you know, I'm just going to focus on knowing. You know, I'm just going to know everything there is to know about everything, but they don't do anything about it. You ever met people like this? They can tell you all the ins and outs of what the gospel is, but they've never shared it with anyone. And then there's others who say, well, I'm not going to get all bogged down in studying, you know, theology and studying what God's word teaches. I'm just going to do what I think God has called me to do. And they may go out and share a faith, but it's not the faith because they don't know the faith. Both are bad. That's why Paul focuses on both in Ephesians, both doctrine and practice. He knows that if we're going to walk worthy, we must have both. To be faithful, we must be sound. And if we are sound, then we must be faithful. Our Christian life doesn't stop with knowing, and it doesn't start, folks, with doing. It starts with knowing, and it progresses with doing. It starts with knowing what God has done for us and knowing who we are in Christ and it moves forward by us living in light of those truths. And, and you're going to discover in this book that Paul does a lot of praying in this book. There are, a lot, there, there are a couple of recorded prayers by Paul given in the book of Ephesians. And do you know what Paul prays for? He could have prayed for a lot of different things. you know what he prays for? Knowing and doing. His first prayer, it doesn't have anything to do with doing. It's just knowing. I pray they would know. Pray they would have knowledge. I pray that it would be sound in doctrine. And then later Paul prays that they'd be faithful, to be doers of the word as well. That's it. You're going to discover in this book that those are Paul's main concerns there knowing and and doing and hear me when I say this I want you to hear this there is joy to be had in both did you know that there is joy in both knowing and there is joy in doing now you'll meet a lot of folks I've met a lot of folks who believe that you have to choose between happiness or holiness it's a choice between joy or obedience Many people believe this. They believe it can be either or, but never both. They believe you have to choose whether or not you're going to follow God and abandon happiness or live for self and truly be happy. But folks, here's the ironic thing here we learn. Scripture clearly teaches that true joy, pure joy is experienced when one comes to know God and when they live For him. That's where true joy is found. It's found in those who are sound in doctrine, and it's found in those who are faithful in practice. There was a lady who lived around the early part of the 20th century by the name of Hetty Green. Y'all heard that name, Hetty Green? She's known by many in American history as America's greatest miser. She was known as the Witch of Wall Street. She's one of the few ladies at that time working on Wall Street. She, she made a fortune. When she died in 1916, she left an estate valued at $100 million. Now, that's a lot for 1916, isn't it? But Hetty Green lived a miserable, miserly life. It's reported that she ate cold oatmeal because she thought it too expensive to heat the water to warm it. Her son had a severe leg injury and and Hedy, fearful of the expense, put off having it treated and she tried to go to a free clinic where her son had to wait a long time and he didn't get treated and the leg had to be amputated. I mean, how terrible is that? When she died, she was worth over $100 million, but she lived a miserable life. I mean, talk about a poor use of your resources. Money was not her servant. It was her master, wasn't it? Folks, the book of Ephesians is written to help believers guard against this. It's it's written so that we would not be miserly spiritually it's written so that we would understand that we're rich in Christ and it's also written to instruct us on how we're to use these riches to enrich the lives of others and to enhance God's kingdom which brings glory to God and joy to us this book has been called by many the treasure house of the Bible I like that it's a book about riches It's a book about fullness. It's a book that teaches us who we are in Christ and how rich we are in Him spiritually and how we're to walk worthy in light of our spiritual wealth and how we're to use those riches for God's glory and for our own joy. That's Ephesians. And I hope you're excited, like I am, to study through this, this wonderful book. Maybe you're here this morning and you have yet to experience these spiritual riches that are only reserved for those who are in Christ. You've not yet come to to the point in your life where you've turned from your sin and you haven't come to the point where you've turned over the reins of your life to Christ and you're wondering if Paul has a word for you this morning. Well, he does. Scripture does. We clearly learn in the book of Ephesians and and elsewhere that if this is you, if you have yet to turn over the reins of your life to Christ, the opposite is true for you. Scriptures are clear that those who are without Christ are spiritually bankrupt, penniless, and destitute. That may be depressing for some of you to hear, but listen, it's true before you can can truly come to experience the riches that are freely given by God through His Son, the Lord Jesus, you have to first come to the realization that you are spiritually bankrupt and hopeless without Jesus. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what God teaches us in His Word. And maybe you're you're here this morning and the Spirit of God is, is doing a great work in your heart and life this morning showing you right now your desperate need of Christ. If this is you, here's my prayer for you today. I pray today be the day that today be the day you turn from your earthly pursuits, you turn from your wicked ways and you give your life over to the Lord Jesus because only in him in christ is true riches only in christ is joy everlasting would you pray with me